I am, we're going to fire straight into a passage today. Um, we are in John 18 still. Um, we're getting close. We're getting very, very close to Easter. Um, and we are now in the run-up. Last week we were in Gethsemane. I'm not going to ask what Paul asked. and said, do you remember what I said last week? Uh, hopefully you wouldn't give me the same answer as the children. Uh, but we're going to open John chapter 18 from verse 12. And we're going to read uh, until the end of Peter's denial in verse 27. Uh, Steph will put the words up on the screen for us. Uh, so reading from John chapter 18 and verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be um, expedient that one man die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, I, uh, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. <coughs> Father, we thank you for your word as we come to yet another somber passage towards the end of the life of our Lord Jesus. As we explore this morning, uh, the, the subjects of betrayal and denial Lord, would you humble our hearts? Would we be humbled? Would you be glorified this morning? Amen. When J.J. Abrams, the director of Star Wars, was filming for the seventh Star Wars film, in Pinewood Studios, he put this poster on the wall. Loose lips bring down starships. It was in reference to a number of World War II posters. And in this poster, Darth Vader's hand is muffling the mouth of the officer who had shared plans about the Death Star. You see, Abrams made visitors to the studio's sign non-disclosure agreements. 
If they told people what they saw, it would spoil everything. Spoiling it would have ruined the story. But of course, much more serious is the subject of portrayal and what these posters are based on during the war. The consequences could be, of, uh, could be the most severe. There was posters that said things like, loose lips might sink ships. And another one was, button your lip, loose talk can cost lives. Betrayal. There is a word, I think it is a word that drips with pain. I think it is a word that as we reflect on it can make our stomachs churn. I think it can make us shiver when we contemplate it. I don't know about you, but when I hear that word betrayal, I get this empty feeling in my stomach because betrayal is one of the most devastating experiences that any human can possibly face. I'm sure you can all think of an experience in which you have been betrayed. I wonder if you can remember that betrayal and the rawness associated with it. Maybe it was betrayal as a child by someone that you knew and trusted. Another child, a parent, a spouse, a schoolmate. Or as an adult, sorry, with a spouse, a child, a friend, someone at work. Maybe even somebody you met online. It gets us twitching a little bit, doesn't it? when we think about betrayal. As I think in my own life and reflect on betrayal that I experienced now 10 years ago, and I think of the devastating effects it has and the consequences that still exist because of stupid decisions that led to betrayal, the consequences of which are still known to me, to my family today. Praise the Lord that he is a God of reconciliation and abundant grace and mercy. But this is our reality as people. To be betrayed by a friend, a family member, those that we love and trust the most, happens. Because none of us are flawless in our behavior. And none of us are able to give total loyalty. I think the prevalence of betrayal in our world is understandable when we understand the prevalence of sin in this world. But I must say, I really struggle to comprehend how anybody could betray the Lord Jesus. And the biblical record of what happened here the night before uh, the crucifixion focuses precisely on the problem of betrayal, not only at the hands of Judas, but also at the lips of Peter. Do you know, I find it fascinating that the Apostle Paul, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, he doesn't talk about the night in which the Lord Jesus broke bread. He doesn't talk about the night in which he was arrested or the night in which he was put on trial, but he refers to the night in which he was betrayed because the betrayal itself has real significance. And this betrayal, this hideous betrayal is one of the most hideous events, one of the most major events in all of redemptive history. So I want to start us by having a little look at Peter, looking at the feeble faith of Peter. John is the only gospel writer not to record the transfiguration for us. The other three gospels do. And they highlight it as an experience, one of the best experiences the three disciples that were with him had during his earthly ministry. 
Jesus took uh, his three disciples, the inner circle. He took Peter, James, and John, and they went up a mountain. There he was transfigured before their eyes. And his face began to glow as bright as the sun, and his clothes would gleam white. Then Moses and Elijah appeared, spoke to him, and when Peter saw this, he said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, Matthew 17, 4. He's saying, let's, let's stay here. This is incredible. I'm with you. I'm with Elijah. Um, I'm with Moses. Let's stay here. Forget about going to Jerusalem, but let's just bask in, in, in the glory of this mountaintop. You see, more than anything else in the world, at the moment of the transfiguration, Peter wanted to be as close as he possibly could to the Lord Jesus, and he wanted to stay there forever. He wanted to keep it for himself. He wanted this mountaintop experience to be his reality. Fast forward a few days, and we find ourselves here in John chapter 18. I think we see some of us in Peter. Peter liked to be close to the man that was oh, gaining a reputation. He was close to somebody that was famous, a position of power with those he spoke to. I think he liked that. I think he was desperate to stay close to Jesus. But I think we're also like Peter in the sense that as soon as his idol fell, of course, through no sin of his own, he ran for cover. When our heroes come under criticism, Often we don't want to be associated with them anymore. And it was the home of Annas that Jesus was taken after his arrest. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Why did they do it? Why did they go and see him? Of course, the judgment had to go through Pilate. It had to go through the governor. There wasn't enough uh, power anymore from the, the, the Sanhedrin from the leaders of the synagogue. And in the legal system, they would go to Caiaphas, not Annas. But in the eyes of the Jews, Annas was the high priest. The Romans had taken the priesthood from Annas. The Romans didn't want priests getting too much power. And in Israel, for the people, the, the priest was priest for life. He couldn't be deposed. So these Orthodox, these Jews took Jesus to Annas first because they saw him as the real high priest. And he was accused of blasphemy, a crime punishable, of course, by death. But the Sanhedrin, this group of religious leaders led by Caiaphas, didn't have the power to execute people. So Caiaphas turned Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to carry out the death sentence. Caiaphas tries to convict Pilate, convince Pilate that Jesus was a threat. He was a threat to society. He was a threat to uh, the stability of society and that he may lead a rebellion. So we come then to this courtyard where we find our Lord Jesus in front of the high priest and some others. John writes, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple I think this disciple is John. Um, usually when John refers to himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, but I think he's talking about himself here. 
There's evidence to suggest he would have association with this priestly group. He would be known by them, so it kind of makes sense. And if any of the disciples has access to this courtyard, that would be John. So Jesus is there. Jesus is there on trial. John is there standing, watching. And he was known. And Peter stood outside the door. He wouldn't have been known. So John goes out speaks to the servant girl who kept the door. That is who she is. She is a lowly servant girl. Her job is to open a door. And he went, verse 15, 16, and brought Peter in. He's saying, I vouch for this guy. I know him. He's okay. Let him in. So the disciple, who was known to the high priest, goes, vouches for Peter, brings him in. And this is where things start to go a little pear-shaped for Peter, verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And into verse 18, now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. It's a bit of a strange thing to include, don't you think? That they're standing around a charcoal fire. What on earth? Does that mean? What sort of relevance is there to that? Keep that in your minds because we're going to come back to that. I think often when we find these small details in Scripture, there is significance, and I think there's significance to this charcoal fire. But here's Peter, just kind of hiding away, anonymous. Didn't want to run away altogether, but he is here. Rewind back to John 13. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Just days earlier, Jesus, if you die, I'm dying too. I'm coming. I'm with you all the way. Something about Peter catches the eye of this servant girl who was watching the gate that made her associate him with Jesus. Look at her question to him. You know, this wasn't a sword-wielding soldier. This wasn't an irate priest. This wasn't an angry mob baying for the blood of Peter, telling him to deny Jesus. This was a servant girl that opened the door. You are not one of his disciples, are you? Peter could well have said, yes, yes, I am. But he chose instead to deny and say no. It's quite unbelievable, isn't it? That all it took... For Peter to deny the Lord Jesus. Days before, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Now, the girl that stands and opens the door is all it took for him to betray and deny his master. Do you know, I think this is how temptation comes into our lives when we least expect it. We're surprised by it. In the moment, we are faced with temptation and we are faced with a decision I didn't expect to be in this situation, but now I've got to think quickly. I wonder what those moments are that catch you off guard. I wonder if it's your boss asking you to compromise your integrity to get something done. I wonder if it's scrolling social media and a video pops up that you know you really should not be watching, but you stay and you watch. You realize that actually you're not just sharing information, but now it's malice, gossip. You're in the moment, you're caught off guard by temptation. What is that temptation? 
You know, the powers of darkness don't know everything, but they've been at work for a long time. They're fallen angels. They're higher created beings than we are. It means they're intelligent, they're fast, they're strong, and they can predict with incredible accuracy exactly how we will respond to any sort of particular situation. I wonder, friends, what is your in-the-moment temptation? It's easier to say no the first time than to say no the hundredth time, isn't it? Peter said yes once, and he says, yeah. He denied once, he denied three times. What difference does the other two make? I've already done it. Out by this fire, warming himself, following Jesus from a distance. I wonder, do the thoughts of your heart, your actions, the words that come from your mouth, point to someone who denies their faith in the Lord Jesus? I wonder if you're someone who would acknowledge that you have grown cold. Prayer, whatever. Scriptures, fine on a Sunday. I remember, I remember being on fire for the Lord once upon a time. I remember what that was like. But now, nah, I'm just going to chill by this charcoal fire. Happy to be anonymous, not get too involved, not get too committed, but I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to watch. So what can we do if we find ourselves in this position? Will you do what Peter did? John 21, the last chapter of the gospel. The resurrected Jesus is on the shore. Peter is on his boat. And he calls out to Peter. Peter looks and he goes, it's you! Verse 7, Peter dives out of the boat and he swims to Jesus and he gets on shore. And you know what happens next? Jesus is sitting beside a charcoal fire. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Come and have breakfast. Friends, how good is Jesus? The last time Peter was near a charcoal fire, anywhere near Jesus, I don't know him. I don't know him. The other gospel writers tell us that he adamantly denied Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And later, Jesus would ask Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Of course I do. Of course I do. Of course I do. One, I love you for every denial. You've heard Don Carson quoted many times recently by many different preachers because his work on John's gospel is unparalleled. I love this. As serious as was his disowning of the master, so greatly also must we esteem the grace that forgave him and restored him to fellowship and service. And that means both in John's gospel and in our lives, there is hope for the rest of us. What we see from our Lord Jesus here is utter grace. It is utter mercy. This is Jesus saying, Peter, I died to forgive you, to forgive you for the very sins that you committed against me on my way to the cross. That means for us that when we stumble, when we fall, when we follow at a distance, when we grow cold, if we backslide, Here's Jesus sitting by this charcoal fire. Come and have breakfast with me. Return, remember my grace and my mercy. Do you know, Satan loves to keep us in the past, doesn't he? He loves it. You've blown it. 
You're beyond the grace of God. And Jesus says, live in the hope of my love, my grace, my mercy. Do you know, we are real. We, we love self-preservation. That's what we're all about as people and our human nature. We love to think of ourselves and put ourselves first. But do you know, it didn't work for the Pharisees. It didn't work for Judas. It didn't work for Peter. And it won't work for you. Peter wanted no trouble for the sake of the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees self-preserved because if they didn't, their whole dynasty was gone. If this Jesus guy is who he claims he is, we are nothing. Our power, our position, our temples, our synagogues, everything that we have is now nothing if this Jesus is who he says he is. So he can't be real. Do you see where self-preservation gets us? Jesus says, forget about all of that. Live in my love, live in my grace, live in my mercy. And we move from there to this, this trial, this illegal, this fake, improper trial. You see, this council, the Sanhedrin, had a number of rules about how they could conduct trials. A trial couldn't take place at night or during the time of an important festival. Well, that's gone. The death penalty couldn't be passed immediately if someone was found guilty. They had to wait overnight to pass that sentence. Didn't happen. The sentence was given immediately. Two or three witnesses were needed to give evidence. Didn't happen. No evidence. Jesus even asks for it after he's been slapped. Illegal, improper, illegitimate. Nothing about this trial was right, done properly. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciple and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? And those who have heard me, what I, and those who have heard me, what I said to them, they know what I said. There are stupid decisions in life, right? And this guy, whoever he is, this officer standing next to Jesus, makes a really stupid decision. When he said these things, verse 22, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer a high priest? Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be cheeky like this to a priest? But Jesus' response in verse 23 is exceptional. Jesus answered him, eh, if what I said is wrong, be a witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He keeps it lawful. He keeps it biblical. He's saying to him, bear witness about what I've done wrong. Tell me. Run this trial properly. You know, he's saying to him, look, we're both good God-fearing Jews. Our scriptures tell us that there is, a, uh, there is a pattern laid out for us of how we conduct trials, of a judicial trial, and of how we do things lawfully. Jesus says, if I'm wrong, show me. Act according to the scriptures and you'll act properly. Verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, from one courtroom to another. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in 
the garden. The servant girl whose job was to open the door, a man standing around the charcoal fire, and Malchus, the poor bloke that gets his ear cut off, but Jesus put back on his cousin. Three people that asked Peter if he knew the Lord Jesus. Verse 27, Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Luke tells us that in that moment, Jesus looked at him, and then the rooster crows, and Peter leaves, and he weeps bitterly. He cries uncontrollably. Depth of total emotion comes out within him as he begins to realize what he has just done to his master. I want to finish with this comparison. What is the difference between Judas and Peter? They both betray the Lord Jesus. But in a word, the difference is repentance. Judas denies the Lord Jesus and goes out and hangs himself. Peter denies Jesus and he weeps. Why? Because his emotion reveals what's in his heart. Judas' act was an act of self-preservation. I can't live with myself for what I have done to the Lord Jesus, so I'm going to call it quits here. Now I'm, I'm done. I'm going to preserve what I've got and I'm going to end this here. Romans 2, we read that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Peter would repent. And here's where we find a bit of hope in all of this. Peter would go on to be restored by Jesus. He would go on to preach, in my opinion, the most powerful sermon ever preached in Acts, starting in Acts 2. And because he preached the gospel that day, thousands of people would come to faith. The church was born. the denying, then the restoring, then the preaching, the grace and the mercy of God that Peter now knows so intimately that gives birth to the church. In some senses, we're here because of Peter's repentance, because of how God used him. We have what we have in fellowship because of Peter's response when he fell and how the Lord used him. So we take then that model of Peter. When we sin, when we fall, when we stumble, when we grow cold, when we deny, when we betray, we accept, uh, we repent. We accept restoration. And we remember the grace of Jesus. And the burden that he took to Calvary. How do I know if I understand this? How do I know if this is real for me? Simply, are you a person of grace and mercy towards others? Because when you understand the grace and the mercy that is given to you, you are so compelled to give that grace and mercy away to those around you. I think all of this teaches us something hideous about the darkness of sin, about the darkness of the human heart, even in somebody that lived so closely to Jesus for those few short years. I think this shows us what people are capable of doing. Even after making the most glorious confession, I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter failed at the moment of truth because this is human nature. But this passage also teaches us that in light of Peter's later 
uh, restoration, what kind of people Jesus came to die for. He had no need to die for those who were sinless. There are no such people. But he gave himself for people who have it in them to betray him. People like you and like me. But you know, this isn't some kind of vice versa mutual thing. Because he will never betray you. If you set your firm foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news of the cross that sets you free. He loves you. He is faithful to you. And he will be for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in the person of Peter, despite his shortfalling, his denial, his betrayal of you, you restored him to do incredible things. You restored him beyond his wildest dreams. That the message of grace and mercy that you laid upon him that he would go and preach and thousands would come to faith in you. But it took that difficult spell of weeping bitterly. Lord, humble us. Bring us before the cross on our knees. Help us to be humble, to accept restoration. To accept the pain that comes with repentance and to leave it all at the cross knowing that we are free, free indeed, because of who you are and what you have done. Amen.